satisfied to love surplus is do you love God? If you love God, you obey Him. If you're not obeying Him, you don't love God. The question isn't whether God loves me. The question is whether you love God. If you love God, you obey Him. That's what Jesus said. Those are the words of my Savior. to a very special edition of Refining Fire Radio. We have a debate arranged today uh, between uh, Kerrigan Skelly and uh, Pat Necarato. Uh The topic of debate today is this issue of original sin, uh, which has been discussed throughout church history now for centuries. I'll give you a quick uh, bio of both of the debaters. Kerrigan has a Bachelor of Arts degree in religious education from Louisiana College with a minor in religion. Uh, he's been involved uh, in the pastoral field. Uh, he had uh, six years of experience. Uh, that would include a youth pastor position, associate pastor, and a senior pastor. Uh, he's also been consistently involved in street evangelism since January of 2004. Uh, he's been leading teams all over the U.S. in evangelism since January of 2005. Kerrigan has preached in the open air uh, over a thousand times on 30 different universities, on public parks, subways, street corners, bars, clubs, parades, sporting events, beaches, states, uh, state fairs and concerts, uh, and festivals as well, uh, anywhere that there's lost people. Uh, he's been married 
since 2001 to his wife, Angela, and they currently have three children. Uh, Pat Nicaragua has uh, been a, a pastor in uh, New York, in Milestone, New York, uh, and is also the overseer of the New Jersey Outreach Group, which specializes in evangelism, apologetics, and various other outreaches. So we're going to start with a 10-minute opening, opening statement uh, from Patrick. So, Pat, you can go ahead and start. Okay, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to participate in this debate. You know, the issue at hand is extremely critical, to say the least. And what the core issue is, I'd say this right from the beginning, at the heart of this debate, it's not necessarily was there an original sin by Adam, but what was the effect or the consequences of Adam's fall? And that's what's going to be the primary discussion tonight. However, one's not going to have to delve too deep to realize that your stance on this issue carries with it grave consequences. Um, how can I say this? Consequences so extreme and so important that your very salvation can quite possibly rest upon your belief on this issue. And, and that's the reason why uh, we're doing this debate, because it's about salvation. And the reason why it, it rests on that is because the very core of the gospel uh, rests upon this issue. For instance, if you were to speak to a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon missionary, let's say, and they on the surface would probably speak very much in agreement uh, regarding topics such as uh, the birth of Jesus, uh, his sinless life, and even his sacrificial death. However, after you would probe a little bit into, uh, let's say, your conversation with, with one of these people, you would see that the so-called Jesus that they preach and they talk so passionately about is someone so far and so away from the Jesus that we find in scriptures that the very first question in your mind is how can they be so deceived? And of course, the, hopefully the second is, is how can you get them to realize the truth? And with, with tremendous urgency, you do everything you can to communicate the gospel. Well, if you're a Christian, you know the consequences. You know what happens when a Jehovah Witness, a Mormon, or a Muslim, or anyone uh, from any other religion uh, if they believe a different Jesus or a different gospel, something other than what we read about the biblical Jesus in scriptures, practically presented on every page, you know what Paul says in, in Galatians, he says, let him be accursed. His eternal destination is no other than that of eternal conscious punishment in hell, separated from God forever. And my plea to you listening to this tonight, or this afternoon, is not to be deceived. You see, the disbelief of original sin cuts down to the bare root of man's self-righteousness. Man is not born in sin. Man is uh, born clean and neutral. Or uh, man sins because he chooses to, not because he's a sinner, not because he has a sin nature or that he's spiritual, spiritually uh, unable or dead. Well, I assert to you now that if you believe that, w that we're born or that people are born clean and neutral, let's say, without the sin of Adam, able to believe the gospel, whenever and however they like, then you, my friend, are believing a man-centered gospel, which is no gospel at all, and you're being deceived. So if you believe that other religions uh, that deny the biblical gospel end up eternally separated from God in hell, what would you say about someone who denies the very atonement of Jesus Christ and his salvific work on the cross? Or what about someone that says, bearing the sins of his people, Jesus bearing the sins of his people and taking the very wrath of God onto himself in their place is heresy 
and a false teaching. What would you say to them? Well, if you'd say, well, I'd correct them. You know, I'd tell them they're speaking lies. You know, they're teaching false doctrine. Well, I'd say that's what David would say, Paul, John, and Jesus. They'd say this because the scriptures teach those doctrines with crystal clear transparency. Now, on the other hand, if you don't believe in original sin, you could never affirm that you believe in those teachings. Never. If you deny original sin, you stand in direct contrast to what David, Paul, John, Jesus, and many others taught, and you stand in direct contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The denial of original sin, or the belief that man is born clean and morally neutral, is a false doctrine that leads to false teaching, a false gospel, false conversion, false security and salvation, which ultimately leads to only uh, wrath and judgment. Now, anyone who rejects the biblical doctrine of original sin has no choice, and this is probably the worst, than to take the glory away from Almighty God. Now, you may say, right now you're listening, well, salvation's not because of anything I did. You know, God did it. He gets all the glory. Well, you're contradicting yourself if you deny original sin. Or you may say, well, I believe salvation is the work of God. I, I believe it's by, you know, grace through faith, all the glory to God. Well, if you don't believe in original sin, you cannot believe that statement. And, and I'm going to demonstrate this, how tonight that these things are true and how it's impossible for anyone who claims to disbelieve the doctrine of original sin to at the same time believe in or even partake in the grace of God. Now, just the one who does the saving is the one who gets the glory. It's either God or man. It can't be both. And denying original sin gives the glory to man, and it strips God of his glory, and that's what you're attempting to do if you deny this doctrine. And, of course, I said all that to say this. What are we going to discuss tonight? What were the devastating consequences of Adam's sin? Well, what I'm going to substantiate and prove tonight is how the Scriptures clearly communicate that what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 left mankind in such a state of sinfulness that everyone born since Adam is not only unable to choose God, but much more than that, none want to choose God. Now, man is not only born guilty into sin, but as the scriptures state, he's actually conceived and brought forth in sin from the womb. He, he's born with a heart more desperately wicked and evil above all things. He's uh, utterly dead in sins and transgressions. He's unable to discern the things of God. Man is spiritually dead in Adam, imputed with his guilt, uh, inherently, radically, and morally ruined in character. Uh, and all this is because of original sin. Now, my opponent's view is going to be quite the opposite, and it's strikingly similar to a certain system of theology called Pelagianism. Now, Pelagianism was directly rejected and refuted by the early church fathers, and it carries with it doctrines that were condemned throughout church history dating back all the way to the second century, or even the first century. Now, today, Pelagius is known to be the founder of my opponent's view of original sin, despite the fact that Pelagius himself was condemned a heretic by several church councils, and uh, universally by nearly every Protestant confession since the Reformation in the 16th century. So to say Pelagianism is a heresy is not some bigoted position. It's to stand in the broadest stream of the Western Church. And that's why literally every great theologian, every reformer, every biblical preacher has embraced the doctrine of original sin and has opposed my opponent's position. Men like John Fox, Bunyan, uh, Huss, uh, Luther, Calvin, William Carey, Matthew Henry, the Puritans, 
Spurgeon, Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, Hodge, Warfield, Ravenhill. I can go on and on. Even modern-day scholars and preachers, uh, uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, MacArthur, Piper, Sproul, Paul Washer, hundreds of others, all believe in the biblical doctrine of original sin as it relates to my position on the issue. And it, listen, these men simply trusted God at his word, and they didn't get caught up in humanistic philosophies, and that's what we have to do. So to put it simply, original sin is basically the top button on the shirt. If you miss the top button, the whole shirt is buttoned incorrectly. And the testimony of Scripture speaks so loud regarding the consequences of original sin that I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface in listing them all here. I could literally list hundreds of Scriptures in, in practically every book of the Bible. Uh, for instance, Psalm 51.5, Ecclesiastes 9.3, Psalm 143.2, Proverbs 22.15, Genesis 5.3, 6.5, 8.21, Psalm 58.3. I, I can go on and on. All these scriptures and many more point to man being born dead spiritually, dead in Adam's sin and guilt. Now, as you listen over the next hour or so, however long we're going to be here, you're going to hear me expound and discuss these and many more scriptures in detail which all undeniably reveal that every man born from Adam is dead in the sin of Adam. Now, Romans 5, this is such a complete discourse in support of my position on original sin that this chapter alone could probably stand by itself and refute any non-biblical view of original sin without much help from any other scripture. Uh, in Romans 5, we see incredible parallels between the singularity of Adam's one sin compared with Christ's one act of obedience. Then even with a quick read, uh, Paul explains to us that just as all are condemned by one sin or by, by Adam's one sin, all believers are justified by Christ's single act, not by their works or righteousness. Now we're going to see tonight the testimony of Scripture regarding original sin on its utter ruin of the human race speaks so loud. Uh, men are condemned, and they're doomed to judgment because of the imputation and corruption of Adam's sin. So please listen very carefully to my opponent's words tonight as he speaks, and ask yourself, uh, you know, I, Kerrigan is a great guy from what I know, but ask yourself, are you prepared to stand before God with his view, with his position on original sin? If so, I'm going to boldly say with all due, due respect to him that you must ask yourself, if you're prepared to ultimately deny what the scriptures say about Christ's purpose and his saving work on the cross. You see, if you deny the biblical doctrine of original sin, realize this stands in direct contrast to the grace of God. Thank you very much. Okay, now we have a 10-minute opening statement from Kerrigan Kelly. You can start now. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you, Pat, and thanks for joining us. And uh, we, we appreciate this opportunity to debate each other. Uh, well, Pat made a lot of very emphatic statements there. I'm not really going to reply to them just that. I'll, I'll reserve that for my uh, rebuttal period. Uh, but let me tell you what I believe, which I'm going to back up with lots of Scripture here. I believe that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God in our mother's womb, that God is the author of our nature. Consider Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, which says, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows well. So God is the author of our Constitution, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made, not sinfully and wickedly made. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Uh, I also believe that we're made in the image of God. I don't believe this image was lost when Adam decided to sin. 
Uh, I know Pat will probably bring up Genesis 5-3 in support of that view. Uh, but after Genesis 5-3, after the so-called fall, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And then in James 3.9, long after the fall, it says, with it, our tongue is talking about there, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. So we're made in the image of God. That means we have a free will, uh, we have an intellect, and we have emotions. Now, free will does not mean that we can do whatever we want to do. It simply means God's given us the power of moral choice. He allows us to choose for ourselves if we'll sin or not. He allows us to choose for ourselves if we'll follow God or not. I also believe that babies are born innocent. They're not born sinners. They're not born perfect. It's a false dichotomy. Babies have no knowledge of good and evil. Their brain hasn't developed to that point just yet. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39 says this, Moreover, your little ones who you said would, ha- would become a prey, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there, talking about the promised land, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 says this, Truly this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 11, talking about Jacob and Esau. For the children, being not yet born, having, done, having not done neither any good nor evil. So babies are born innocent. Uh, they're not born perfect or sinners. And they have no knowledge of good or evil until a certain point of time. Sin is not some stuff. Sin is a moral choice by a morally knowledgeable free will agent. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 41 when he's talking to the Pharisees. They ask him, they say, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Uh, James 4.17 says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Sin, you must have a knowledge of good and evil. You must have a knowledge of morality to be able to commit transgression, to be able to commit sin in God's eyes. Sin is not transferable. It's not a stuff. It's a choice that people make. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when he used this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? These people, there's a proverb in Israel, these people were saying that the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set, the children's teeth are set on edge because the fathers have eaten sour grapes. As I live, said the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. First John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness or breaks God's law. And sin is a lawlessness or breaking of God's law. Our bodies are just instruments. Our bodies are not sinful. Consider a knife. A knife can be used to stab someone in the back, a use for evil, or it can be used a cup of vegetable and eat, used for good. But the knife itself is not either good or evil, and so the same with our bodies. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 to 13 says this, And do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness 
to God. So we're, our bodies are instruments used for righteousness or unrighteousness. But we must yield, must present ourselves to go either way. Our bodies in themselves reject sin. Sin is unnatural. It is abnormal. It is against nature. Consider drunkenness. You know, drunkenness destroys your liver. Drunkenness uh, burns brain cells. Drunkenness gives you a headache in the morning, and it's throwing up in the morning. Drunkenness is against your nature. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 says this. When Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So Gentiles, by nature, do things in the moral law, although not even having the law. So their nature that God gave them, that God created in their mother's room, is good. And, and, and their bodies can be used for good or evil. Uh, I believe that we become sinners and spiritually dead when we come to the age of reason, the age of understanding, the age of knowledge, the age of accountability, is sometimes called, and we choose to sin. And this will be different for everyone, especially for uh, comparing a Christian family to a, a non-Christian family. Uh, consider mentally handicapped people or juveniles. In our society, we wouldn't hold mentally handicapped people and juveniles accountable in the same way that we hold adults accountable. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 9 says this, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Talking about spiritually dying, they're not physically dying because Paul was still alive. Uh, Romans 7, 11 says, For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and it killed me. Being spiritually dead doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to do anything. It simply means you have a broken relationship with God through your sin. Isaiah 59, 2 says this, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that you will not, he, he will not hear you. Uh, consider the example given in the story of the prodigal son. Uh, listen to what his father said when he returned in Luke 15:24. He says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. So we're talking about his, his relationship with his son was dead because he had left and lived a life of iniquity, but now he's alive again. So not, and he's alive again. So he once was alive before he sinned. So he's alive again now. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus gives the, uh, the epitome, the definition of eternal life. And this is eternal life, that it may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is having a relationship with God and knowing him. It's not a place you go to in the end. It's knowing the one true God. And sinners, according to Colossians 21, 21 are, were once alienated, enemies in their mind by their wicked works. Not by Adam's wicked works, by their wicked works, yet he has now reconciled you. Everyone is accountable for their own personal sin. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25 says this, Far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from me. So not the judge of all the earth do right. So not the judge of all the earth do right. Yes, he will. And according to Ezekiel 18, verses 14 through 20, he will not hold the son accountable for the sins of the father, nor the, sins of the, nor the father accountable for the sins of the son. They're all accountable for their own sin. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 27 says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his father and his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds, not Adam's deeds, his deeds. Jesus viewed children as belonging to the kingdom of God. Matthew 18, 3 said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you should by no means enter the kingdom of God. I believe that people corrupt themselves. 
at their, in their youth. All who have come to this age of accountability have sinned against God by their own will, by their own free will. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 says this, The Lord has smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the, uh, the ground on account of man, for the tent of man's heart is evil from his youth, not from his birth, his youth. Uh, and then in uh, Jeremiah 3.25, it says this, Let us lie down in our shame, let our, our humiliation cover us, for we sin against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. Uh, we'll be judged according to our knowledge. Uh, consider what Jesus said on Luke 23.34. Uh, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And Jesus was born with the same kind of body we're born with. Uh, it says in Hebrews 2.14, As much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of it, that is, the devil. And I also agree with the early church. I agree with the early church. All right. Okay, now we're going to have a seven-minute rebuttal from Pat. Great. Uh, now, what we have to keep in mind that it's very easy to stick your hand into the Bible and pull out a certain scripture and then stick that into another part of the Bible and use it to, uh, I guess, rebuke a certain, like what Kerrigan was, to me, uh, we're going to go through a lot of these scriptures, but you can't take an inference out of scripture and use it to contradict a whole passage. So I hope to really get into some of these. I'm going to cover some of them now. He started out by saying, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God formed us. In other words, how could God form us if we're sinful? Does God, you know, create sin? Well, our nature is not corrupted by any positive act of God or by an infusion or an implanting of sin or stuff, as Kerrigan said. No one is saying that. God withholds judicially those influences which produced in Adam a tendency or a disposition to holiness. So basically God just doesn't give us certain things. It's not that he creates us evil. He holds back our intended holiness. And a quick look, just in Genesis 5-3, if you look on this genealogical passage where it says that Adam had a son and his name was Seth, and it's in a direct contrast to how Adam was created. Adam was created in the likeness of God. Seth, and, and Moses writing this goes through pains to say, he was, crea- he was created in uh, the image of Adam, in his likeness. There's a sharp distinction made there. Uh, I, he mentioned Ezekiel, uh, Ecclesiastes 7.19. Uh, Solomon, in, in that passage, is not speaking of God creating each person upright. The word man, kind, and Adam are used interchangeably. He means Adam. God created man upright. He created Adam upright. And we know this because Solomon would have never contradicted himself. Two chapters later, in Ezekiel 9.3, he says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity, and in their hearts throughout their lives. So he would have to contradict himself there. Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 11, all are neutral. Roman, the context of Romans 9 is not original sin. It actually disproves the opposite. I'm surprised to use that. The context is that people are not chosen or elected by God on the basis of works. But uh, salvation is according to the sovereign will of God. And he's basically saying that it's not going to be based on works, but on God's choice and grace. And he's using a perfect example, Jacob and Esau. They're twins. They weren't even born. So how can you, uh, you know, Mr. Roman, ever think 
that this is something that is by works. Um, the next thing he was speaking about was, I hope to get into this more, but Ezekiel 18 is another uh, passage of Scripture that's taken totally out of context. There's a significant historical background here. Israel is in rebellion, is getting punished for their father's sins. We know this because in the same time as Ezekiel was written, Jeremiah says in Lamentations, our father, Lamentations 5-7, our fathers have sinned and are no more, and it is we who have borne their iniquities. This is the same time in Ezekiel 2-3 it says, Son of man, I'm sending you to a rebellious people who they and their fathers have transgressed against me. The Jewish people were making excuses. They're saying, we're always getting punished for our father's sins. Why should we obey now? And God is basically being very just and saying, listen, I'm not going to judge you on your father's sins anymore. I'm going to judge you on your personal sins. You're going to be accountable for what you do. Ezekiel's not giving a discourse on original sin in chapter 18. As a matter of fact, if you use Ezekiel 18 as an absolute principle that no man can take the blame for another's sins, you'll prove away the atonement of Christ. If it's never possible for a man to get punished for another man's sins, we have no Savior. And this denies the very essence of the gospel. Uh, the age of accountability. Uh, where is that in Scripture would be my question. I'm looking forward to, to speaking about that because we all know children are sinful. Infants are sinful. They throw temper tantrums. They resist. They rebel. They scream. They kick. Uh, they, they're sinful. Even toddlers, they manipulate. And we see in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then there's a parenthesis there, and Paul says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even, those, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Listen, I am not trying to talk about are infants saved or are they not saved. That's a totally different discussion. However, infants, God sees it fit to, when infants are born into this world, they are condemned. They are condemned in the sin of Adam. They have the stain of Adam's sin, and by nature, they are children of wrath. Romans 7, 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Again, extracted out of Scripture here. When the commandment came, sin uh, became alive and I died. Paul is speaking this in light of what he just said in chapter 6, referring to believers in their old nature as being a slave to sin. Now, having been freed, we are no longer enslaved to God, it says in chapter 6. Verse 9 is not referring to Paul being spiritually alive before the law because he sinned at the age of accountability. He died. The verse simply says that the law made the sin that was already in his members revive and recover its life. In other words, it made it become alive so that he would know his condition. A good way to say that would be, I felt fine when I didn't understand what the law demanded, but then when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner. Now, I also mentioned James 2.10. He says, for whoever shall keep the whole law, well, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I don't think you mentioned that one. I'm going to skip that and go right down to the prodigal son. Luke 15, the prodigal son. This is not a story about being dead in sin or original sin. The prodigal son is a story that emphasizes repentance, but more importantly, it's in the context of lost and found. The older brother never neglected a command and yet was hardened, he was lost. You see that older brother, he did everything the father was saying, but he was still lost. The message in, in Luke 15 is that hardened sinners are going to have to repent or else they're going to be broken in relationship with God. 
Um, let's see, what else did we go through? Um, Jesus will repay every man to his deeds. These, these scriptures, you have to read them in context because a lot of these scriptures are speaking to believers. And yes, every man will be repaid according to his works. But how does that negate the fact? Did, did you call time? Yeah, it's time. I'm sorry. I can't hear too well when you when you do that, so just to let yeah. you know, you may want to say it twice. <laughs> sure, no problem. Now we are going to have a seven-minute rebuttal from Kerrigan. Uh, Kerrigan, you can start now. Okay, uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3, where it says, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Like I discussed in my opening statement, since then, the Bible makes it very clear that we are made in the image of God. And it doesn't say anywhere in this verse uh, that Seth was born with a sinful nature, whatever that may be. So it doesn't prove that Adam's nature changed after he sinned either. In fact, nowhere in Genesis chapter 3 where, we're discuss where it discusses God's punishment upon Adam and Eve, nowhere in that passage does it ever say you lost your free will, if Pat believes he had a free will, first of all, uh, that you lost your free will, that your whole posterity has lost their free will, that your whole posterity will be imputed with their guilt of your own sin, and that they'll all be born sinners and they can't escape, but they can't do anything but sin. Nowhere does it say that. So this is eisegesis, not exegesis here. He's uh, taking an idea and making this passage that he believes. What we see in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 is, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. James chapter 3, verse 9, once again says this, With it our tongue, we bless God, our God and Father, and, we, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or likeness of God. And these, are, these, these quotes are long, much longer after the flood, or after, even after the, uh, the sin of Adam and even the garden, too. So uh, these disprove his, his uh, idea of us getting a sinful nature or being made, quote-unquote, the nature of Adam. But the fact of the matter is Adam was made, made in the, nature of, uh, the image of God, and if Seth's in the image of, of Adam, then therefore Seth must be in the image of God as well. So there's no difference there. Uh, Psalm 51.5, he brought us up in his opening statement to really go through it, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is one of the most favorite proof texts there is for this false doctrine of original sin. Uh, first of all, Psalm is a poetic book, so when you're interpreting verses in the Psalms, you can interpret them uh, literally or figuratively depending on the context. Uh, if taken literally, this verse definitely does not mean what the NIV translators translated it as, that I'm sinful from birth doesn't say that. In fact, every other Bible does not translate it as that. That's actually an interpretation of the verse, not a translation of it, what the NIV says. It simply says uh, that in the manner in which David was conceived or was brought forth, it's the same thing, was sinful or done in iniquity. Uh, David's mother most likely had an unclean relationship with a heathen before marrying Jesse. She was either his wife or his concubine. His name was... Uh, Nahas. I'm not going to go through all these verses for that now. I'm going to take my time for that. That's one possibility. If it's not taken literally, which is uh, more probable, David is probably just saying or exaggerating in a figurative language how sinful he is. Uh, consider verse 7 with, with this, uh, this figurative interpretation here. Verse 7 simply says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Well, none of us are purged with hyssop and cleaned with hyssop from our sins. And verse 8 says that the bones you have broken may rejoice. 
Now, God didn't break any of David's bones, and none of David's bones rejoiced uh, after he repented. So this is a figurative psalm. This verse mentions nothing of Adam, nothing of Eve, their sin in the, in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't mention anything about the rest of mankind or people universally being born sinners. And keep in mind, this is a prayer or a psalm of repentance. If David is saying he's born a sinner and that's why he sinned, this is a prayer or a psalm of excuse, not a prayer or psalm of repentance. Uh, Pat also mentioned Psalm 58.3 in his opening statement, which says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Once again, this is a poetic psalm that can be taken literally or figuratively. So let's look at the context here. Do babies speak as soon as they're born? And obviously not. I mean, I've had three up to this point. None of them are spoken as soon as they're born. They're definitely speaking lies as soon as they're born. Let's look at the rest of the psalm, which is very figurative. Verse 4 says, they are like death cobras. Break their teeth in their mouth, verse 6 says. Break out the teeth of the young lions. Verse 7 says, they let them flow away as waters. And verse 8 says, let them be as a snail. I mean, consider some other poetic verses, like Job 31:18. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. Now, did Job really guide the widow from his mother's womb? Of course not. So this isn't talking about a literal uh, person speaking as soon as they're born and speaking lies. Uh, it simply is probably just saying that uh, one of the first sins that someone commits is, is a lie. But it doesn't prove it mentions nothing about David, nothing about Adam and Eve, nothing about the Garden of Eden, nothing about their sin, nothing about being born sinners, nothing about – in fact, it says they go estranged from the womb. So that means before they came out of the womb, they weren't sinners. And if they weren't sinners before they came out of the womb, but they are now since they come out of the womb, that means they're not born sinners. Unless there's some kind of sinful stuff that's in the, the birth canal that's making them that way. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.3 was mentioned. It says, this is an evil and all that is done under the sun, that one that happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Now, Pat said this refutes my uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29, but let's look at this Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3. It says, the sons of men are full of evil. Can they say they're born evil? Does it say how they became evil or when they became evil? And the word translated sons here is used 4,906 4, times in the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word, bane, used 4,906 times in the Old Testament. And not one time is it translated as baby, infant, toddler, or anything like that. The closest it comes is child ten times. But Ecclesiastes 7, uh, chapter 7, and verse 29 says this, Truly this ha only have I found, that God made man um, upright. But they, not him, not Adam, not he sought out many schemes. They have sought out many schemes. So God made all of man upright, but they, plural, not singular, have sought out many schemes. So his Ecclesiastes 7.29 does not refute that at all. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'll get into the Romans chapter 5 in my next rebuttal period. I'm able to get into it in the question and answer period. But I don't have any time for that now. Um, so that's it. Okay, thank you very much. Now we are going to have a five-minute uh, cross-examination of uh, Pat cross-examining uh, Kerrigan. So you can start now. Go ahead. Oh, oh, Pat? Hold on a second, Pat. Sorry, sorry yeah. about that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Pat. That's okay. In Jeremiah 13:23, he writes, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So my question is, is an Ethiopian born 
with his skin color, or does it become that way on choices that he makes over time? Well, an Ethiopian is born with his skin color. But if you look at the second part of that verse, which you actually said, it says, then may you also do good who are accustomed Right, I'll get to that. Thank, but you do agree that he is born with his skin color. It doesn't become that way. Right, he's not guilty okay. of any crime Thanks. for being Thanks. born with his skin color. Let me go to the next question. Is a leopard born with his spots, or does he become, and I'm not being facetious, but does he become spotty over time? Oh, I actually have no idea. I would assume they're born with their spots. But I don't they're really born know that way. Okay, thank you. Okay. Now, if, if that is the case in context, are you denying that this verse is saying that people become evil by becoming that way and they're not born that way? Are you yeah, denying it says that? that? It says that then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. So this is nothing about being born a sinner or being, well, it, uh, you know. Thanks. I appreciate that. Now, can, if, well, the, the, the whole context is that an Ethiopian is born with his skin color, a leopard is born with his spots, but then the writer is changing the context and saying these people become that way from some type of example. Is that what you're saying? Well, they're accustomed to do evil. He's talking about their present state. Not talking about where they're born. Okay. He's talking about their present state. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that in Psalm 51, this is hyperbole. It cannot be taken literally. Now, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and that, well, 15 and 16, that from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scriptures given by inspiration of God, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Do you believe Paul intended the Psalms to be included in this exhortation? Yeah, but it's also a principle that hermeneutics you need to use when interpreting the Bible. But you do believe the Psalms are included in there? Of course. Okay. So do you believe all the Psalms are profitable for reproof and for doctrine and for training in righteousness? Uh, or, or is this, or are there some that aren't profitable because of hyperbole? Well, hyperbole has nothing to do with whether it's profitable. I mean, Jesus said, you know, cut off your hand, it causes you sin. Does it really mean he wants you to cut off your hand? No, no, no not literal, not profitable. literal, profitable. So could we use that verse that you just brought up about Jesus saying that to know how much he hates sin? And if so, why can't we use Psalm 51.3 to know uh, that, Jesus, or that uh, David is saying that he is born sinful since the whole entire context of Psalm 51 is David's sin? Well, like I said, it can be used hyperbole. He's exaggerating. By, it's a penitent psalm by David about his sin. But it doesn't say anywhere there that he was born that way. And to, to impose that upon that verse and then make a whole doctrine out of it is ridiculous, not sound. Okay, well, it actually says in Psalm 51.3 that he was born that way. It's actually, that? It, he's, he is saying, because you just said that it doesn't say that he was born that way, but it says that he was conceived into the womb. So you need to keep your, your comments to questions and not, not, uh, not statements. Okay. So my question is, is are you denying that what he's saying when he says he was born, comes forth from the womb, well, I'm sorry, when, he's, uh, when he was conceived in sin, that that, is, that takes away from the meaning that he was uh, born in sin? No, it doesn't say that. It says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived. So the matter in which he was brought forth, the matter in which he was conceived, that is sinful. It has nothing to do All right, with let me move, I just want to move on to one more question. Um, I got I got your point there. Um, the how much time do I have? Do I have about another minute? 
You have one minute left. Do you believe that infants and small children display sinful attitudes and behavior? Yeah, I, I believe I do, yes. Okay. So, uh, Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Is the foolishness that is bound up in the heart of a child, is that evil, good, or neutral? Well, first of all, I was talking about a child. Well, I asked just one or the other, because Jesse, right, he's got to answer the question without giving a, just, if I ask a specific question, can you just answer it specifically? Well, are, they born, are they born evil, good, or neutral? They're born, they're born neutral. There's nothing about the way they're born in that verse. Okay. So how do you, would you explain, if a child is innocent, that God tells us to punish them with a rod, um, uh-huh. If they were, are, do you believe that God would want us to punish an innocent child in this case? Well, it's called training. Training the child in the way they but when they're old, they may never depart from it. You're training them. Okay, but, he, but yeah. he says it's a punishment that was, to save that their soul. That was the last question there. Oh. We're, we're out of time Okay, here. all right. So now we're, now we're going to have uh, a five-minute cross-examination of uh, Kerrigan uh, cross-examining uh, Pat. You can start now. All right, Pat, uh, does... Did Adam and Eve and Lucifer and the third angel, did they have free will? They all, you can't put Adam and Eve in the same category as Lucifer and the fallen angels, but Adam and Eve, yes, they were born with free will. Okay, uh, if so, why, why did they sin then? They sinned because God gave them the ability to make a free choice. But why did they sin? They, they sinned because they were trying, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to uh, transgress God's law, his command, and they chose to. So they were simply tempted and they chose to sin. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, okay, so, so does it say anywhere in Genesis 3, when it lists the consequences for their sin, does it list, say anything about um, them being born, them being, their constitution changing to being sinners and everyone within their posterity being guilty for their sins and everyone in their posterity being born sinners? Say anything about those three things. In, Gen- in Genesis 3, it alludes to that, but it says that specifically in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Yes, it says specifically, it? yes. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even though through one act of righteousness resulted justification, for as through the one man's disobedience many were, and the word is constituted, many were constituted sinners, even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be constituted righteous. So, yes, their constitution uh, did okay, change. Okay, okay, that's, that's good. That's good. Uh, and then in Romans 5.18, it says, through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation, condemnation to all men. And then it says, if we're going to say that means all men there, shouldn't we also say in, verse, in the last part of it, even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification to life to all men? Should well, we that's what the, the scriptures, that, that's what it says, yes. Okay, so doesn't that lead to universalism then? No, because the word all has to be taken into context. We know that Paul here is speaking, of, is speaking to believers, and we know in other scriptures that universalism is completely condemned, and we know that Paul, in a couple of books later, okay. speaks right. to us about... I'm not talking about any other verse. I'm talking about this is one verse. It's, you said that the first part, one transgression resulted in condemnation to all men. Now, that means all men, right? That means all then, men born from Adam, yes. Okay, okay so then... Why aren't all men justified according to the second part? Because it says all men there too. Because it's not a direct, the all is not a direct parallel. He's using many, like the many were made sinners, the many would be made righteous. We see that in a couple of verses before that. So we know that he's not talking about all men. 
No, it, it, okay, verse 19, it says, For as though through the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, you're saying that's constitution, even so through the obedience of one, the many, once again a parallel there, will be made righteous. So is it many uh, are made sinners, or are they all made sinners? I'll give you that answer right now. Verse 17, those who receive the, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So we, have to, we can't just, again, take a scripture out and say, boom, this is it. We've got to look at a couple scriptures before, and in verse 17, it's clear. It's only those who receive the grace of God. Does God make us in his image? Yes. He does. So we're made yes. in his image. What does that mean? That means that from, uh, from an in, we have an intellect, we, have a, uh, we experience emotions, um, we have the ability to choose, like God does. Um, we have the ability to feel. Um, we have a will. Uh, we are made in the image of God, yes. Okay. Did Cain have a free will? Uh, Cain, yes, he did. Cain had a free will. Cain had a free will, but Cain was only eight, was in bondage to that will because of sin. Okay, so, so let me just read to you Genesis 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, and let you respond to it. Okay. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will it not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, when God said you should rule over it, did he mean it? Did he, could he really possibly rule over it? Well, see, again, we can't take a, something like this in Scripture and, and say, well, listen, God is sitting here asking Cain, and God doesn't know what Cain's going to do. Cain's choices are a, re a result of God's previous sovereign decrees. So God knew exactly what he was going to choose. Cain was a fallen creature. Yes, he was able to choose, but only that of sin. But he did, because God is just, he did uh, exhort Cain and say, listen, Cain, you must overcome sin. You, it's it's, it's so, lying so, so out why, the door. Why would, why would he admonish him to overcome sin if he couldn't do it? Why would he admonish him? Well, again, God is not, sitting, God is not going to be surprised. He's already decreed Cain's response. So he's doing that because, as, as the... Um, the proverb says that the plans are in the man of the, uh, or you know, the plans are in the in the in the heart of the man, but the answer is of the Lord. So we can we have to look at this and say, well, we can't say, well, look, how? Because you can go through thousands of scriptures that have God telling people to do something, but some, but God doesn't change. God ha has every right to expect Cain right here in this scripture to obey him, even though Cain is virtually unable to do it because. He is a son, and as we know, he's a child of Satan. We see that in, uh, in James, or in, in I'm sorry, in First John. We, uh, we have time, actually. We went almost a minute over. That was my fault here. All now right, you're being, a little, uh, you're being a little gracious on the other side there, Jesse. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Go ahead, move forward. Okay, we have a seven-minute rebuttal from Pat, so we have seven okay. minutes. Go ahead. Okay, um, well, I don't know, I get, what I'd really like to do is to give you some scriptures, and the first thing one I'd like to give you is Ezekiel 11:19. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take a heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. If you look at this verse right here in and of itself, where, where this is a, a verse that we see in other scriptures too, talking about the new covenant, we see that the word stone is one of the most unchangeable objects in the universe, and God is using that as a way to describe our heart. It's a heart of stone. It's not a heart that, a heart that was first flesh that became stone. 
It's out of the, he's going to take that out and give us a heart of flesh. Um, Psalm 51 is a, is a, is a, is a, is the one of the worst, it represents one of the worst uh, sins in all the Bible. David sinning against uh, uh, God with Bathsheba, and he writes this, pouring his heart out in repentance to God. And <clears throat> please don't believe that this is just some hyperbole that David is singing while he's walking through his bedroom. Uh, this is not that. David is, in, is saying to God that he is so sinful, that he is so bad, that even from the womb he was sinful. Even his mother, okay, when he was conceived in her belly, sinful. He's not saying that... Um, you know, this is some type of hyperbole and that this can't be taken literally. The wicked are estranged. They're alienated from the womb. Now, they don't come forth speaking lies. That's a mistranslation. It says, these who speak lies go astray from birth. So he's talking about the wicked people who he's saying that they're estranged from the womb. And he's saying, these people who speak lies, they go astray from birth from the time that they come out. Job 14.4, who can make clean out of unclean? No one. What is man, in verse 15, 14, that he should be pure? Or he who is born of woman, that he should be righteous? There are none. In the, and in Ephesians chapter 2, he starts out, we are dead in sins and transgressions. And then he goes on to explain that we are by nature children of wrath. But the most important thing I want to get to now is Romans chapter 5. If, in fact, you look at Romans chapter 5 now, and in fact, verse 13 to verse 17 is a parenthesis, which it is in the Greek, and it is even in the King James Version. It would go like this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's a past action. All sinned. A completed past action. That's why he could say in verse, um, uh, a few verses before that in verse 7, he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. So we... It, so death spread through all men because all sinned. And then go right to verse 18 after the parenthesis. So then as through one transgression, Adam sinned, there resulted condemnation, hell, to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there re resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, constituted sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And if you look at this, again, Kerrigan said, well, is that universalism? No, you have to read the whole chapter. It says very clearly that the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. But in 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive, those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. I, don't, I think the word one is used 11 times in verses 12 through uh, 20. And this is a, 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 Paul is showing us that this is justification by faith. If my opponent's position is correct, he would say, he, would, he, he really would have to be saying that through many transgressions by people, we all died, and then through many works of righteousness, do we become alive in Christ, which again is a works-based uh, salvation, which is no salvation at all. This is why I said this is such an important topic to tackle, because if you're thinking that you're saved by works, then you are believing a false gospel. Also, uh, we, we see here in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
Uh, I don't. I mean, we're referred to as slaves of sin uh, in so many pa- passages. Romans six six, Romans six seventeen, Romans six twenty. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins, who commits sin, is a slave. So you are of your father in verse forty four, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. When he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, should we correspond this with Psalm 58, where it says that those it's wicked people there. speak lies? Go ahead. All right, it's time. Uh, now we have a... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, you actually... Uh, it's supposed to be a seven-minute rebuttal. You, you actually have uh, two more minutes left. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Three, uh, verse 11... After Paul just puts both Jews and Greeks and everybody under sin, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. Now, if Paul is saying that he is talking about only people who have reached a certain age of accountability, right now in this country, there's 40, 50 million seven- or eight-year-old kids. So he doesn't mean them. I mean, think of over time, there's 106 billion people that lived on the earth if the earth is six to 8,000 years old. Think of how many people would be excluded in so many scriptures if Paul somewhere, somehow, distinguishes between, uh, because of one word, youth, where he's so clear in speaking that we are by nature, by nature, in Ephesians 2, children of wrath. Not adults, we are children of wrath, by nature. And, and he says there are none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. Not one. Not anybody born neutral understands. And he's not talking that they became this way, because in a few verses down, he says the path of peace they have not known. Does that mean they have not known since they become accountable? No. He's saying that there are no fear before their eyes from the time they were born. They were, like Paul says in 7.14 of Romans, he is sold into the bondage to sin. And we can continue to go on and on. Jesus, we could talk a bit. There's tons of verses just about inability. No man can come to the Father except through, I'm sorry, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, draws him. No one. That's a universal negative. That means no one anywhere can come to Jesus, not because they were born free and they are neutral, and then all of a sudden they watched somebody and became a sinner, and now they're unable, because that would make them at one point able. They cannot do that. So I'll stop there. Okay, now we are going to have a seven-minute rebuttal from Kerrigan. Uh, Kerrigan, you can start now. Okay. Now let's go back to Psalm 51.5 just a second. Let me reiterate here. It says nothing about Adam, nothing about Eve, nothing about the Garden of Eden, nothing about uh, anyone else being born a sinner. It's simply talking about David here. It does not say he was born that way. It says I was brought forth in iniquity. So the manner in which he was brought forth, the manner in which his mother conceived him, that itself is sinful. And once again, this, this is a proof text for original sin. And this is saying, David's saying, well, I was born this way. It's not, a, it's not a prayer or a psalm of penitence or repentance. It becomes a prayer or psalm of excuse. Simple as that. Uh, and once again, Psalm 53, we'll go through it again. Look at our estranged from the womb. So I guess they're not born sinners. They become sinners at some point in time, according to their interpretation. Um, and then we're going to go to Ezekiel uh, 36, 26, which is similar to the, the verse that Pat quoted in Ezekiel. It says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take your heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He assumed that man is totally passive in this situation. 
And this situation says nothing about, once again, Adam, Eve, the sin of the garden, and how people are born. It's me saying to adults, you have a heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. But what does Ezekiel 18, verse 31 say in the same book, which says, God speaking to Israel, cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? See, God's expecting them to do something, which is something they can only get from God. They can't do it themselves. They need to get it from God. So there's a synergism there. Uh, so the heart is the will of man from which all sin proceeds. Sin proceeds from the heart. That's why God, Jesus said that out of the mouth comes all kinds of wickedness, because out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. But it does, it does not prove that their heart is born that way. And this whole issue of <clears throat> children sinning because they're sinners is simply a cliché. Uh, we, we talked earlier in the uh, question-answer period of, of Adam and Eve having a free will. Now, why do they sin? Because they chose to. So why is it a problem then when children are born into a sinful world and they experience temptation themselves? Why is it a problem all of a sudden that they can just choose to sin? There's no problem with that, logically speaking. Now let's go to Romans chapter 5. I really want to look at this here. Romans 5, verse 12. I'm going to tell you this, that every person who believes in original sin that I know they come to this passage with a predisposed belief, a bias, and they commit eisegesis here. And verse 12 says, therefore, this is through one man, sin entered the world. That a sin enter into every single person, or did it enter into the world? And then death through sin. So death entered the world because Adam became spiritually dead. Not, it's not talking about physical death here. It's talking about spiritual. Because God said to Adam in, in Genesis, he said, in the day you eat of this tree, you shall die. And that day, and Adam didn't die physically that day, he died spiritually. So it's about death for Adam. And thus death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. So death is spread to all men because all have chosen to sin. Now, what I put on trying to make with Pat in, in Romans uh, 5 and 19 and, and 18 is simply this is what it says. Therefore, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. That's the first part. And it says, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous righteous act, the free gift came to all men. So you got all in all there. So if you're going to say, you're going to apply the first part by causation, that Adam forced them all to be sinners by his own sin. Then you're also going to say in the second part that Jesus, by his righteous life, forced all to become righteous through his act of living that way, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so as by one man's obedience, many will be made right. Now, what Pat wants to do here, what most Calvinists do, is they'll say, well, well uh, us, by one man's obedience, all were made sinners. So let's, let's, let's do it with the second part then. So also by one man's obedience, all will be made righteous. That's universalism. And that's why most universalists were once Calvinists at one point in time. So Romans 5, the, the favorite uh, co uh, you know, proof text of, of the original sin group, Romans 5, 12, 13, does not say anything about this. It's people are simply imposing something upon there that's not there. Romans chapter 3, which is a, a, a collection of quotations from Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah that Paul put together. The whole context of Romans 3 is not to prove original sin. It's not to prove total depravity or total inability. It's simply to show Jews who are prideful, who thought, well, hey, I, I, have, I have the law of God, and, uh, you know, and I, I have the, uh, the, the character of God through the Scripture, uh, no, it's not saying that. He's simply saying that Jews are sinners just like the Gentiles. That all are sinners, not just Gentiles. All of, everybody is a sinner by their own choice. Uh, and, and when it says in, in Romans 3.9, it has a we there and a they there. 
Who who are the we in there? This is preceding uh, Pat's quote from Romans chapter three verse nine, which is the compilation of all those verses. Says what this right here in Romans three nine. What then? Are we better than they? Who is the we there? The we are the Jews. The they are the Gentiles. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. So he's talking about Jews being sinners, just like Gentiles are sinners. Because Jews had this false pretense that they were not sinners, when they really were. Uh, and then let's move to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which says, For the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, in context here, it's talking about uh, people who receive the wisdom of God. I mean, there's certain things that non-believers just cannot know. It's not talking about you can't know anything or can't do anything. Uh, the wisdom, this wisdom that is talking here can only be spiritually discerned. You know, I had a hard time reading and understanding the Bible before I became a Christian. But I can understand certain things like the gospel and, and that Christ died for me and I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And once I became a Christian, things began to make sense to me because I had the author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, living inside of me. Only those who are spiritually minded or those who have the mind of Christ can understand the wisdom of God. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, where he talks about people being dead uh, or children of wrath, uh, but doesn't say they're born that way. It's simply talking about a person's moral character there, their present moral character or their past moral character, which has changed. This is nothing about Adam, nothing about Eve, nothing about the Garden of Eden, nothing about the, everyone being born sinners. Simply says these people, because of their moral character, were children of wrath. That's all it's saying and nothing more. Okay, uh, we are on time here. Now we are going to have a five-minute cross-examination of Pat cross-examining Kerrigan. Okay, thanks. Uh, Kerrigan, in Romans 5, verse 12, you know, that death spread to all men because all sinned, are you implying that all men personally sinned due to Adam's example? Uh, yeah, everyone has personally sinned since Adam's example, yes. Okay. Now, how do you explain the fact that all sinned is written in the historical tense, expressing something that happened in the past, if he means all personally sinned? Well, it's simply saying that all at the present time who he's writing to have sinned. That's all it's saying. All at the present time have sinned at some time in the past. That's why they're okay. How do you explain verses 13 and 14 where Paul clearly states that death and condemnation reign over those that never sinned against any known law in the likeness of Adam? Well, that's, that's simply talking about they sin in the same way that Adam sinned, because from Adam to Moses there was no written law. So they, they made a sin against their conscience, because every man is born with a conscience, knowing right from wrong at some point in time. Thanks. They become today's maturity. Isn't... The, isn't the law of their heart a law? Isn't that a law of nature? You talking about the conscience? Yeah. Yeah, everyone's born with a conscience, but they, they don't understand it when they're a child, when they're a baby. They must come to this uh, age of understanding, age of knowledge, uh, which is what Romans 9-11 is talking about. In the word there, it says, there, it says sin was not imputed. It's not imputed where there is no law. Paul uses the Greek word elogeo to describe impute there in verse 13. It's only used in one other place. The common word is lagazome, which is used throughout the New Testament where impute is used. But in there, just this one time, it's only used. It's only used again in Philippian, or, uh, Philemon 18, where Paul says, 
charge to, you know, it says if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So if Paul wants to, you know, communicate your view of imputation, why would he use a word that clearly communicates a transfer of debt or legal imputation? Well, he's simply saying that he will not keep record of it. He's not keeping record of what they have done because they sinned out of ignorance. You know, so he's not holding them accountable to anything but their conscience. And that's the only thing that can be held. So it's really a, a, a good proof for what I believe, uh, saying that they're only be held accountable. And just what, saying what Romans, uh, I think Romans 4 is saying, where, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Yeah, so, well, thanks. If you, but they are being held. They are being held accountable because it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who had not sinned in the like in the offense of Adam, who is a type of who of him who is to come. So, is that not implying that they are accountable for something that they didn't do? No, they did it. They sinned against their conscience, but that's all they're accountable for. Okay. And, spirit, and death there seems to be talking about you. spiritual death. Do you believe that man always acts upon his greatest desire? No, I don't. You don't believe that man always acts on his greatest desire? or do you, uh, Does anything inherent cause him to make his choices? Well, I believe that, uh, that children and, and people develop a sinful habit, and that becomes a temptation. But temptation is never causation. It's simply temptation or an influence. It never makes you sin. Nothing ever makes you sin. You simply choose to sin. When you sin, is your desire to commit that sin greater than your desire not to? Uh, yeah, I, I guess it would be. Mm -hmm. And so how did it initially get that way? How did it initially get that way? Right. Well, if, new, I mean, if, if man is neutral with no predisposed uh, moral inclinations, okay, how does, he, how does he get that way? Well, he simply chooses to be that way. But nature doesn't mean the way you're born. It simply means uh, what you developed in your moral character and uh, how, how you choose to live your life. And we're very habitual beings. You know, I mean, people aren't born drunkards. They become drunkards. They become alcoholics. People aren't born drug addicts. They become drug addicts. It's the same way when it comes to sin. Okay, in John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. If no one alive is able to come to Jesus on their own unless the Father draws him, would this not be a violation of man's free will, according to what you believe? Uh, say, say that question again. Would John 6:44 be a violation of man's free will, where no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him, would this not be a violation of man's free will? No, I respond with verse 45, which says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. I, absolutely. The they learn. The Father teaches them and draws them, and, and they learn from them how to come. But they, the Father is the one doing it. How could, isn't this a overcoming of somebody's free will? We have, no, we have time influence. Here. Okay. Influence, not a force. Okay, now we have a five-minute cross-examination. Uh, Kerrigan uh, asking questions to Pat. You can start now. Okay, uh, Pat, does God hate sin and love holiness? Yes. Does God generally want people to obey him? Does God generally want people to obey okay, him? Genuinely. Not generally. Genuinely. Yes, he genuinely. does. Man is fully responsible for obeying God, and he wants so that. He's genu God generally wants people to obey him. If yes. that is true, then why did God, according to you, give us a sinful nature which is going to make us sin? 
God did not give us a sinful nature. God created us pure and perfect in Adam. And then when Adam sinned, God removed our disposition to holiness. And then from that point on, we've become, as we could see in the scriptures, everyone is dead in sin okay, upon okay. birth. Now, 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 now if, if God hates sin and loves holiness, and he genuinely wants us to obey him, why did he do that? Well, first of all, I, I know the answer to that. It's so simple, to glory, for his own glory in the cross sin of Jesus brings God Christ. Glory. Absolutely. Sin brings glory to God? Sin brings, everything is, brings glory to God. Sin, um, when somebody sins, I'm not saying God is the author of sin, but the way that God has decreed everything is that even sin is ultimately used to glorify God, hence the no, cross say, of Christ. I didn't say if it was used to, to glorify him. I said, uh, does it glorify him? In, in the end, yes. In the end, yes. Is God, is God angry with the wicked every day? According to Psalm 711, yes. Uh, and, and, and according to you, and according to what you said about Cain, at least is what I'm, I'm getting from what you said, God made Cain do what he did. God did not for, fit, no, Cain was not forced by God. God, God, brought, about, God brought about Cain's response. Um, through the wickedness of Cain. God knew what Cain was going but, but, okay, to. But, yep. but according to you, according yep. to you, God withholds this, this uh, you know, righteousness, so we can't do good. It is then, if that is true, is God then the author of his own anger? Uh, God is the author of his own anger? Yes, of course. He's the one that is angry, and he has the one that's chosen to be angry. So God is the author of his own anger? Okay. Yes. Um, is it just to condemn someone for something they didn't do, or something they had no control over? Uh, it is just if that person is involved in a covenant, uh, under the covenant of Adam, all men, yes, it would be just in that, but all men are also not going to be charged with another person's sins. They're going to be judged okay, uh, okay. for their That's personal okay. sins. So you're saying that Adam had some kind of covenant with God that if he sinned, everyone from him would be, can be constituted sinners as well. Adam had a covenant of God. Um, he was our representative, and this idea is throughout all of Scripture. Um, where, 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 does it say, where does it say that he was a representative of all human race and that when he sinned, we would all become sinners? Where does it say that? Well, we, we, we know that Adam broke covenant with God, and because of that, the earth was cursed, and we became under the dominion of Satan. And we also know, like, like Korah, where uh, they rebelled and 14,000 people died, like Achan when his whole family was killed. And I can go through dozens and dozens of more scriptures. Okay, but you still not give me the answer. Well, I'm going to. But what God did was is he punished those that were, he saw, he's, it's an idea of oneness. He saw the human race as being in Adam, for as in all Adam die, all Adam are, uh, all in, in Christ are made alive. That's, so he that's saw us in Adam. That's talking, about, that's talking about the resurrection. Uh, he's, 15, right? he's talking about, and say that again? Is first in Corinthians 15 talking about, First Corinthians 15, the verse you just quoted, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive. They're talking about spiritual death or physical death? He's talking about uh, spiritual death uh, and well, physical all death. Made alive? All he's made talking alive? about He's talking about spiritual death. He's drawing a parallel to explain to the Corinthians that, look, 
don't be worried about what's going to happen after you know you you die and what body you're going to have and all this just as in adam all die as he just explained in romans 5 all are imputed with adam's sin and are spiritually dead and condemned because of it just because just like that happened all are also going to be made alive in Christ, and yes, they are going to get a new physical body. But he's drawing the parallel there to, uh, you have to look at his other teaching. You can't just put, pull that scripture out and say, uh, and use okay, that okay. Uh, to so, do so that. So you're saying 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about spiritual death. So in Adam, all I'm of, saying it's talking about so, both. Even, hold on a second. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. So are all made alive in Christ? Yes. All that, of course, so he's talking to Christians. Yeah, all Christians. No, that's not what it's saying. It's a, you're, so the first part is talking about Christians then, too. Are all people not dead in Christ? All Christians are, yes. So it's just talking okay, about we Christians. Have, yeah. We have to look at who he's talking to. He's talking to Christians, so we have to assume he's talking about them. Okay, now we are going to have a 10-minute closing statement from Pat, and you can start your closing statement now. Okay. <clears throat> well, that went quick. Um, well, what, you, what you've heard uh, is over and over, as, as I see this in my opponent's presentation, was a classic example of something that he mentioned, accused me of, eisegesis, taking a scripture verse and reading into it your traditions and beliefs, uh, rather than looking at the context and making your interpretation based on exegesis, which is what the, the biblical context is teaching. And you've seen him take single biblical texts and then use those assumptions to contradict plain passages and plain areas of teaching. For instance, like if you have a calculus question, you would go to your calculus professor. You wouldn't go to your history professor just because you know your history professor knows a little bit about calculus. You'd go to the place that has the most accurate, full, complete, comprehensive information. And this is what we have to do when we interpret Scripture. Go to the place in Scripture that deals directly with the topic that you're studying. For instance, don't stick your hand in the Bible and pull out a scripture that speaks of God calling someone to obey him, and then use that as your proof text to deny entire passages about the inability of man. See, in order to, to deny original sin, this is exactly what you must do. You've just seen that. You have to take scripture out of context and mistranslate it to fit your position, and this is what I believe Kerrigan did tonight, uh, Kerrigan did tonight, with, with all due respect to him. Uh, what we must realize is that truth is not dependent upon our ability to fully understand it. If God sees fit to impute to us Adam's guilt and punishment, even though we did nothing to physically deserve it, then so be it. It's impossible for God to be anything but perfect and holy. His thoughts are not ours. His judgments are perfect. Now, some will say it's unfair. You know, God can't possibly punish us for what Adam did. We didn't do anything. Or, you know, Adam commits sin and we die and we're condemned to hell forever because of it. It doesn't make sense. But as I believe, or as I've attempted to try to make clear in a little bit of time that we have, if you think it's unfair that Adam's sin gets imputed to you because you had no involvement in it, then you must also think it's unfair that Christ's righteousness gets imputed to you, even though you did nothing to deserve that. And this is where the rubber hits the road, because I know many of you are, that listen to this are saying, you know, I don't do anything to get saved. You know, our coming to God is not a work. But if man doing anything in his unregenerate state to come to God, if he does anything, it completely voids out the grace of God. 
And in, in my opinion, and I believe biblically, it's a tragic, eternal misconception. If you can't accept Adam's imputation of sin to you, and you believe you're not dead in sin, maybe you're just injured, you're able to pick yourself up and, do, and, and choose God whatever you want, if this is your belief, it uncovers and exposes the fact that, uh, that you believe in a works-based gospel. That's where it's going to end up. Now, further, and, and most frightening, as I mentioned and alluded to, is if you believe you're born without sin, or you played a part in seeking God for salvation, like my opponent is implying through his whole presentation, you're taking away glory from God. I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not give my glory to another, is what God says in Isaiah 42.8. Uh, Isaiah 43.7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. God has created you for one purpose, his glory. He works all things out so that he is glorified. And by denying the doctrine of original sin, you are resisting the actual purpose of your, uh, of your whole existence, to glorify God. My glory I will not give to another, God says. Now, we must dare not take away glory from God and claim that it's something in us that makes us savable. Or, or worse, we must dare not preach to the unsaved and tell them that they have something in them which allows them to come to God. If we do this, we're, we're, and if you preach against original sin, because that's what this in essence is, it's no different than Benny Hinn preaching to a person who's dying of cancer, but tells them if they have enough faith, they can heal themselves, and then when it doesn't happen, hey, it's your fault. God wanted to heal you, but you just didn't have enough faith. What a tragedy. Listen, don't get me wrong, man is responsible. But in order for man to recognize his responsibility, like Cain, in order for him to recognize his responsibility to obey, he must be freed from his inability due to the consequences of original sin. And I think this is why some people fall into the trap of rejecting the doctrine of original sin, because rather than trusting just in the plain teaching of God's Word and the sovereign work of God, it becomes easier to answer tough questions in evangelism by simply saying, hey, there's no original sin. Uh, a homosexual man comes up and he says, hey, I can't help it. I was born that way. It's much easier if you could just say, hey, there's no such thing as a natural-born sinner. See, people that preach a false version of original sin, Pelagianism, moral, uh, moral government theology, Mormonism, or any variation or form of theology that rejects the biblical doctrine of original sin makes it easy for themselves to answer the tough questions about God that people of the world naturally resist due to their deadness in sin. You see, rather than take this route, leave the results to God. Be obedient, preach the word, because God tells you to, regardless of the results. That's what we're commanded to do. God handles the results. We have to stop trying to manipulate people into thinking they're born clean and neutral, which leads to the belief that they can do something to be saved. It's all God, and the voice of Scripture is clear. Unregenerate man cannot and will not choose God. His mind's at enmity with God. He's not even able or willing to understand the things of God because of original sin. Now, the Scriptures are clear about the consequences, which I've tried to cover, but uh, now that I look back, I barely even tip, uh, scratch the surface. Original sin causes unregenerate man to be born in sin. He's helpless from conception. He's unable to even repent. He's unable to come to God. He's a slave. He's a child of wrath by nature. He's a valley of dry bones. He's under the power of Satan. He can't even seek God. The, teacher, the, the scriptures teach, like I just said before, that a man is born with a heart of stone. Jesus told Lazarus, come forth. By his word, he raised him from the dead. And since then, nothing has changed. He still works the same way. Man can do nothing but be faithful and obedient. God raises the dead. We don't raise ourselves. 
Now, we see here, he mentioned Ezekiel 36, in verse 26, God says regarding our condition, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will put my spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes. Do you see a theme here? It's God doing it. Notice the repetitive eye. More than that, do you see what he's doing? He's doing surgery that only he can do, taking a heart of stone, turning it to flesh. Can a heart of stone ever change on its own? Jesus is described as a rock, a rock that is the, it's the most unchanging object in the universe. Like I said, they don't change by themselves, neither can the human heart. It's dead. Now, we're unable to release ourselves. As in Jeremiah, I mentioned this in the first, in the first question, and Kerrigan could answer anything because it's so obvious. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or, change, or a leopard his spots? Then you can do good who are accustomed to do it. We cannot change our nature. Trying to be pure and clean is like, try, like a leopard trying to change his spots or an Ethiopian trying to change his color. I mean, can God make it any more clear? John 8, he says that anyone, Jesus, anyone that's a sin is a slave to sin. He goes on to say that the same group said he's speaking to in verse 44, you're of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. Does the devil's child do the deeds of God or, or the deeds of the devil by nature? Are they neutral, the devil's children? They're slaves. Now, are we to believe this type of scriptural language is to be overridden by sporadic inferences in scripture that my opponent mentioned tonight, picking out a verse here and there cannot and must not be used to overcome complete discourses on, spirit, on scriptural topics. Now, I'm going to close with this last plea. Review the scriptures for yourself. Go to John 6, John 8, Romans 8 and 9, Psalm 51 and 53, Ephesians 1, Romans 5. Uh, I pray God will open your eyes to see everyone that's born in sin, in this world deserves, everyone in this world, I'm sorry, is born that way in sin. He deserves punishment due to Adam's sin. They deserve condemnation. Jesus says we're condemned already, but by God's grace he saves. He does, in fact, give many justice, but because of his grace, his kindness, and his love, he gives some mercy. People that did absolutely nothing to earn it, they didn't deserve it, but the best thing is that God, he never compromises his character because nobody gets injustice. See, if you reject this, I refer to you to Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, not the nation, or the man who runs, not the nation, but on God who has mercy. Thank you. Okay. Now we are going to have a 10-minute closing uh, uh, response or closing statements from Kerrigan. Uh, you can start now. All right. Original sin is neither biblical nor a historical doctrine. All you do is do a, a, you know, a cursory glance through some of the uh, early church fathers like uh, Irenaeus and uh, Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Tertullian Origen, uh, Clement of Alexandria. None of these men, not just Pelagius, none of these men believed in the imputation of Adam's sin to all his posterity. None of them believed you were born sinners. In fact, they all believed you had free will. I'll let you look into that for yourself. So it's not biblical, nor is it historical. Now, I want, you to, I want you to keep in mind something here, friends. Every verse he gave tonight, not one of them said that people are born sinners. Not one of them said that Adam's sin is imputed to us, that we're guilty for Adam's sin. The same things we're repeating over and over, kind of like a broken record, which doesn't make it right, uh, over and over again, like it's going to be beaten to your head, like it already probably has been for most people listening now, 
and that, that'll make it true. But saying something over and over again does not make it true. Lots of people believing it does not make it true. He stated the fact that people since Augustine have believed it, and, and all the people from the Reformation believe it, and all the popular teachers today have believed like Paul Washer and John Piper and John MacArthur. So what? So what? The truth has never been popular. I mean, if we're going by popularity here, then the Protestant Reformation should have never happened. Let's go back to Roman Catholicism. But the fact of the matter is we don't decide truth by, by a, a majority. We don't decide truth by synods and catechisms and, and uh, you know, statements of faith or popular teachers. We decide truth by the Bible. Sola Scriptura. Uh, this doctrine of original sin was not believed by the Old Testament prophets. This doctrine of original sin wasn't believed by Jesus, who believed that children belonged to the kingdom of heaven. This doctrine of original sin uh, was not believed by John or Peter, the apostles. Uh, some say, of course, uh, of course, past one of them, that the apostle Paul believed and taught in original sin. But such people need to make sure they're not interpreting, that, that they are interpreting things properly, not by eisegesis, but by exegesis. Uh, I need to read 2 Peter 3, verse 16. None of the early church, as I said, the first 400 years, none of them believed in such a doctrine. In fact, this doctrine was first made popular, first introduced to the church as a whole by the Bishop of Hippo named Augustine. His background was in Gnosticism. He was a part of the Manichaean sect of Gnosticism and obviously had a hard time letting go of some of his old beliefs. The Gnostics believed that the flesh, the body we live in, was inherently evil. So they thought Jesus really didn't come in the flesh because the flesh is evil. Jesus came in the flesh and he couldn't be a savior, a pure savior from sin. And that's what the whole book of 1 John is written about. It's written against this Gnostic heresy. But the book of 1 John makes it very clear that if you deny that Jesus came in the same flesh as us, that you're an antichrist. So Christ, if we have a sinful nature, then guess what? Our savior had a sinful nature, and therefore he's not a savior. But according, you know, according to Hebrews 2 and uh, and, and 1 John chapter 4 and 2 John verse 7, uh, he was not a sinner. He's more of the same nature as us, the same body as us, yet was without sin. He was tempted at all points, just as we are, yet was without sin. Uh, so the Bible did teach that, that Jesus came in the flesh, uh, but people thought, because people had this idea of original sin originated basically with Augustine, the Gnostics, uh, they thought, well, uh, we have to figure out some way of, of Jesus not, uh, not being sinful. So they came up with all these, these uh, little uh, theories they have of original sin. So they started this point of original sin being true, and they made up all these theories. Uh, they came up with theories or doctrines like the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary was born sinless, and therefore Jesus is born sinless because Mary was born sinless. Uh, th so that she was sinless all her life, and she was without the stain of original sin, uh, some kind of Immaculate Conception for Mary, and therefore Jesus wasn't born with original sin. Uh, they, they would say that, uh, that Mary, uh, the people came up with other unbiblical theories, such as Adam was a representative for the whole human race, and we all made a decision in him. So we all made a decision in Adam. But how can that be true? We weren't even conscious. We weren't even alive. How can we make a decision in Adam? Or some say, as Pat seems to be saying, that God made a covenant with Adam, that whatever he did would, would affect the whole human race. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does say that we endure physical death because of Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. And it does say that sin was brought into the world as a temptation. And that now we have the knowledge of good and evil because of Adam's sin. But it does not say we are made sinners because Adam sinned. Uh, people also come up with this, this uh, theory that sinful nature only passes through a man's semen. Uh, or as Augustine put it, through sexual intercourse. People who believe in this believe Jesus is born of a virgin simply because uh, he, he couldn't have man's semen involved in the situation or sexual intercourse involved in the situation, therefore he was born sinless. 
But Mary was a sinner as well, unless you believe in the Mac conception. Therefore, uh, Jesus is at least half a sinner from that point of view. So you have this a problem here that this consequence, that if you believe in original sin or sinful nature, therefore our Lord and Savior is now born with a sinful nature, and he's a sinful Savior. He can't save anybody. He can't even save himself. But none of these theories are found in the Bible. Search it for yourself. They're not found in the Bible. The problem I've seen is that people start with this idea of original sin, and they work from that and, and make all these false theories. So what people should do first is look at their presupposition, look at their starting point or their foundation, original sin, first to see if, they, if that is correct or not. If not, then their foundation is simply sinking sand. That's why so many people have unbiblical theology. You can't do anything. There's no free will. God predestined some people to be damned. He's let them choose for themselves. Now, let me just read what Albert Barnes had to say about this issue. One principal reason why so much difficulty has been felt here has been an unwillingness to stop where the apostle Paul does. Men have desired to advance farther and penetrate the mystery with the spirit of inspiration have not disclosed. Where Paul states a simple fact, men often advance a theory. The fact may be clear and plain. Their theory is obscure, involved, mysterious, or absurd. By degrees, they learn to unite the fact and the theory. They regard the explanation as the only possible one. And as the fact in question has the authority of divine revelation, so they insensibly come to regard their theory as the same thing as what the doctrine of the apostle says. A melancholy instance of this we have in the account in which the apostle Paul gives in Romans chapter 5 about the effect of the sin of Adam. The simple fact is there that the sin was followed by the sin and ruin of all his posterity. He offers no explanation of the fact, how they got they, that way or why they were that way. And many suppose they have found in the doctrine of the theory of Adam's sin being imputed. And they hold to the responsibility for a deed committed by a man thousands of years before. You say, say, say I'm done, Jesse? Oh, no. You still have three okay. minutes. So this is, a, this is a theory. If men desire to understand the epistles of Paul and avoid difficulties, they should be willing to leave it where he does. And this single rule would have made useless whole years of whole tomes of controversy. As Albert Barnes put so well, this doctrine has become like a sacred cow. Most people aren't even willing to question. You heard all the threats that, uh, that, he, that he gave at the beginning and saying, oh, you're, you're going to be, you're not even saved. You're, you're destroying the gospel. You're taking credit for your salvation. You're giving yourself glory. And the fact of the matter is you're giving God more glory. You're not holding him responsible for man's sin. You're giving man no excuse for his sin. They can hold himself accountable for sin. As Barnes has said, if you were to question this doctrine, it would be called a Pelagian or a heretic or some other kind of name. You'll have all kinds of straw man attacks levied at you by, by people are saying you're, you're not giving all glory to God and, and you're taking credit for your salvation and, and that you, you don't believe you're really a sinner. You believe people are born pure. The ironic thing is that people who do attack you at hominid straw man attacks think they win by doing so. People will quote catechism, statement of faith, and synods that these are the standard of biblical doctrine and sound theology. Sola scriptura. Three things keep people from questioning this, this false doctrine. Assumption ignorance, and fear of man. Don't assume things. Don't be an ignorant. Search this out for yourself to see if it is true. And if it's not, don't believe it. Look at the Bible with a Berean mind. Study it uh, objectively. If, uh, this, this doctrine makes God into someone who demands the impossible, punishes people for the unavoidable, and someone who is angry with the crippled. This is not the God of the Bible. The question is, will not the judge of the universe do right? The answer is yes. God will judge the world in righteousness. Original sin is not biblical. That's my conclusion. But don't take my word for it. 
Test it for yourself according to the Bible and the Bible alone. Okay. Well, that concludes our uh, debate. I uh, would uh, encourage everyone to listen uh, to this radio show. I believe we're having a radio show again tomorrow, and we're going to be discussing uh, the debate and how it went. I would also encourage everyone to go to the libraryoftheology.com, and at the libraryoftheology.com, you will see more articles and discussions about this issue of original sin uh, and you know versus free will. So uh, okay. thank you and, all and for now, listening. And, and now we're going to uh, not question and answer period. Uh, if, if people want to call in, we'll wait a couple minutes. There's no calls lined up right now. Uh, but if people want to call in and ask questions, they can do that. So we'll just give a couple minutes if anyone calls in to ask a question to, to me or Pat. And if you have a question, uh, please ask only one question and direct it towards either me or Pat. And then whoever you direct it towards will have two minutes to respond, and then the, the, uh, the other debater will have one minute to respond to that. So we'll just wait a minute or two, if you don't mind, Pat, and just uh, uh, see if anyone calls in. And no problem. Call, then, we'll just, then we'll just let you – oh, so we have some callers. All right. Um, I'm going to let you come on, and then you want you to state your name and where you're from and who you're, uh, you're directing your question to first, and then only one question, and then let them respond. Uh, First is area code five four one. What's your name? My name is Benjamin. Edwin, and this is Edwin Lowe from Arizona. Arizona. Hello. Can you can you speak up? Hey, were you there, Edwin? My name Edwin, is Ben. Are you there? Ben. Yeah, I'm here. I just I got a lot. I think we need to let him talk. I think he's trying to he's stepping on us. Okay. Okay, I, I need. I only need one. I need one person to speak at a time. I can't really hear you guys right now. One person to speak at a time, and only one question. My name is Benjamin. I'm from uh, Albany, Oregon, and I had a okay. question um, about. Uh, obviously, it's the birth of Christ that we celebrate this time of the year, and I was wanting. Uh, this question was actually for both speakers, and I wanted them to explain the importance of the Virgin Birth of Christ. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, why don't, we, why don't you go first, Pat, take two minutes, and I'll take two minutes as well, so it's directed to both of us. Sure. Uh, Jesus, if we look in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, we see that he is a holy child. Um, he is not like us. He's in our likeness. He's referred to as the second Adam. He's made pure. Um, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we say, uh, I'm sorry, verse 26, it says, we, if, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, Holy, this is much more than just somebody that's like us, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Uh, Jesus was, yes, he was in the likeness of our flesh, and, and people that believe in original sin do not think that, uh, you know, deny that Jesus came into the flesh, like in that Gnosticism uh, accusation, but we do believe that Jesus, the Bible does teach that Jesus is like us, but he was different. He was born of a virgin. He was born holy, and he was separate from sinners. So yes, in our likeness, able to qualify and break the pattern of Adam, but yet not having original sin. Okay, yeah, uh, Isaiah 7:14 says that it was a sign that was given uh, to the people uh, that he would be born of a virgin. 
so it's not significant because he wouldn't be tainted with original sin or wouldn't be tainted with the sinful nature. It's significant because God was his father. And it was a sign, according to Isaiah 7, 14, to the people. Uh, but as we see in, in Hebrews 2, 14, it says, Inasmuch that the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And Hebrews 2, 17, 18 says this, Therefore in all things he be made like his brethren. In all things he be made like his brethren. They might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. So Christ was tempted just as we are at all points, yet was without sin, because he chose not to sin. And, and that's why uh, he's a sinless Savior, not because he's born that way or because he was made that way, simply because he chose to be that way and chose not to sin, to follow God and fully obey God, as we should have done in the first place. All right, uh, let's go to the next caller. It's uh, from the 732 area code. Uh, what's your name, caller? Stuart Migdon. Okay, and uh, who's your question for? I have, a que- I have a few questions, if I may, if there's no other questions. No, only one question per caller. Only one I question per caller. I will ask one, and if there's no other questions, I'll, I'll ask another if you'd let me. But anyway, my first question is to Kerrigan. Kerrigan, what do you believe are the consequences uh, for believing, as Pat does, in original sin and the fact that we are are in original sin. Are there any eternal consequences for that belief? Uh, yeah, I, I believe it gives man an excuse to sin, an excuse for their sin. I believe if man, uh, if they believe in original sin, and they stand before God as a sinner, having not repented and trusted in Christ, and, and, and they say, well, God, it's not my fault. I mean, Adam sinned. I didn't do anything. I mean, he sinned, and therefore I, I was born with the sinful nature because you made this covenant with him that we'd be born sinners if, if he sinned. And and therefore, I, I can't help it that I sinned. I just did what was natural to me. Uh, but that's not what's going to happen before the throne of God. What will happen before the throne of God is that every man will be accountable for his own deeds. He won't be accountable for Adam's deeds or for what Adam did, won't, uh, won't mess them up and make them sinners. They're simply accountable uh, for their own deeds. So it gives sinners an excuse. It makes God the author of sin. And, um, you know, th- those things aren't true according to the Bible. Pat? Yeah, um, well, you know, there, I don't think that I'm saying or anybody that has the position of original sin that we are going to stand before God and point to Adam and say, yeah, it was all his fault. Ever the, the Bible's clear, even in Romans 1, we are without excuse. We have the law written on our heart. However, this doesn't uh, eliminate Romans chapter 5, where it's, so, it's crystal clear that the context is justification by faith alone. And then Paul goes on to speak that Adam who is the one, the reason why we have condemnation, the reason why we are a fallen uh, race, uh, is his sin is God has accounted it to all of us. Uh, as I went through in Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the people that are, have never sinned in the likeness of Adam are having condemnation. He's, he's talking about everyone, and we are imputed with that sin, but no one's going to stand before God and point to Adam because every single person has sinned. We've all chosen to sin against God on our own. We've all transgressed God's law. So we're not going to stand before God, and, and I think the Bible's crystal clear that we're all going to have to stay before, stand before him on Judgment Day for not even every action, but every thought that we had that was wrong. All right. Uh, thanks for your question. I have a next caller lined up here, and I believe that they're on Skype. Um, hold on a second. Let me get you up here. 
Uh, someone is calling from Skype. What's your name, please? Okay. This is Doug. I'm from Missouri. I'm known on here as uh, Truth and Reason. Um, I have just have a question for Pat. Uh, before I ask the question, though, uh, in reference to the mystery at the beginning of this, leopard spots do change. <laughs> uh, but anyway, oh. uh, that's Thanks. a little lighter note. Um, if this is directed towards Pat, uh, you, you said earlier in the debate that uh, God is glorified by sin. If, if God's glorified by sin, then why did he uh, turn his back on Christ whenever he took our sins upon him on the cross? God is glorified by, by the sinful actions of man. A good example of this is Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph's brothers came to him and said, are you going to, you know, to paraphrase, you know, they were scared because Joseph was going to, uh, they, they thought that now that he, that the father had died, that Joseph was going to get, get them back for throwing him in the well. And Joseph said very clearly, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And there's count, I mean, the, the very cross of Christ, God, it says that it pleased the father to crush the son. So why would it please him? He didn't turn away and was sitting there going, I can't believe this happened. He was glorified through that, that evil and that wickedness. So I'm not sitting there God is rubbing, saying God's sitting there rubbing his hands together saying, look at all this great wickedness. God didn't, was not the author of sin. God allowed sin to come in, and now he uses it and actually even decrees it. As we see, it says that he, is, uh, he creates Ra, it says in the Old Testament, which is evil. So he brings it forth, he brings it about, but he's always glorified by it, as just as well as he will be glorified by everything that happens, um, because he gets all the glory. Everything was made for his glory. Well, I mean, according to your, your, uh, your question, Truth and Reason, I mean, this, this response, uh, this issue with Joseph, God can turn evil into good. There's no question about that. The question is, is God glorified by sin itself? And my answer is no. God is never glorified by sin. God hates sin. God loves holiness. And if it were up to God, every single person in the world would stop all their sinning altogether and live holy for God. Now, uh, th that doesn't mean that that's a works gospel. It doesn't mean you're saved by your works or saved by your good things. It means that that's a response to, to what Christ did for you on the cross. And Christ dying on the cross, why was God pleased in that? Because his son was obedient, first of all, unto death. And second of all, because now the salvation of souls can, be, can happen. Now people can be saved. They can be forgiven. They can have their sins washed away. They can be pardoned and reconciled to God. That's why God was pleased. He wasn't pleased in the very beating of the Son. That makes God into some kind of like, vicious vampire. But, but God was not pleased with that. God was pleased that the Son was obedient to death, and he's pleased because now men can be saved from their sins. Truth and reason, thanks for your call. Uh, I'm going to let you go there. And um, now we have a call uh, from 910. I believe this is John. You there, John? Hey, Kerrigan. How's it going, brother? Good. Hey, Pat, how you doing? Good. A uh, question for both speakers. Uh, where did sin come from? Thanks. Go ahead, Kerrigan. You can go first. Oh, yeah. Uh, sin originated first with, with, with Satan. He was the first one to ever sin. Um, no one sinned before him. He chose to sin out of his own free will. Adam and Eve, they chose to sin out of their own free will. There was no kind of secret decree that God wanted people to sin or he forced them to sin, or made them sin. They simply chose to sin. Every sinner since then, out of their own heart, out of their own choices, they originate their own evil, wicked sin. No one forced them to do it. No one makes them do it. They simply choose to do it. And this right here brings glory to God. This right here does not impute any kind of, uh, uh, you know, 
reason for God to be accountable for sin. Every man's accountable for his own sin. But if, like Pat says, that uh, the, because Adam sinned, we're all, all therefore sinners, and therefore we sin because we're sinners, uh, then first of all, Adam's accountable, and second of all, God's accountable because he made this kind of transaction. But, I mean, to, to say that because men choose a sin, that's a false doctrine, well, Adam and Eve chose a sin. If they chose a sin with only one temptation, the devil, then why is it ludicrous or ridiculous or a false doctrine to simply say that every man since then, because of temptation uh, from the world, from the devil, and from his own natural, non-sinful desires or, or, of the flesh, that, uh, that he has chosen, every man since then has chosen to sin. Now, that's what the Bible teaches. Um, God is not impotent. God is not, uh, there's nothing out of his control. He knew Satan was going to sin. Sin was brought into the world by Satan. Uh, and that's why in Romans 5 it says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, it doesn't mean entered into the cosmos, it means it entered into the world of people, because um, that was something that Kerrigan had, I believe, used in the wrong context before. But God brings about evil without being the creator of it or without being responsible for it. As I was referring to before, Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace, and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. But God is not saying there that he maliciously creates evil. There's nothing that happens that's outside of God's control. He's not sad that everything here is... God is completely in 100% control of every breath, every hair on everybody's head from the beginning of time, including Satan. So it would be illogical to say that God couldn't create or allow humans uh, to, to sin because that would be, then he would be the creator in, uh, of sin. Uh, Satan was the one who was going to be blamed for originating it, but God was well aware of that was going to happen, and he had in view the cross of Jesus Christ, where the ultimate evil, God being crucified, is going to bring him the ultimate glory, um, where he is able to save those that he has chosen before time began, but yet those people still are responsible. Those people on earth are still responsible for choosing God, regardless of, uh, of the sin of Adam or, or their own personal sins or their own personal inability. They're still responsible because God did not create evil. All right. Uh, it looks like we have one more caller. It's from the 541 area. I think it's the same caller, actually. Are you still there, 541? Uh, yeah, my, uh, my name is Mike. Yep. Um, I'm calling from uh, Albany, Oregon. Um, I got yep. a question for uh, both speakers, and um, okay. I'd like them to give an, uh, uh, after they give their answers, to comment on each other's answer. Uh, my sure. question is, um, why does the Bible make it clear in uh, 1 John 5.1 that uh, re regeneration precedes faith? 1 John 5.1. I'll let you go ahead, Pat, first. Please. Okay, 1 John 5.1. Let me just jump there. Um why does it make it clear that regeneration precedes faith? Yeah. Okay, well, it's very clear throughout Scripture um, that one must become born again. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse, I think it's verse 8, let me just jump over there, it says that nobody in the flesh is able to please God. Uh, it also says that our repentance and our faith is actually a gift from God. It says that, as I mentioned in the debate, that uh, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father not drags, not draws him, but drags him. 
uh, that word draw is, is translated drag in two other places in Scripture. So the Father must enable somebody to believe they're blind. They're, the Spirit is foolishness unto them. Uh, that's why it, it, that's the whole basis of my argument is that this has to be a works-based salvation. Because if you believe you can do it, then at the end, you are going to be getting credit. But like this caller just mentioned, it says that because it's true. Man is unable to even discern the things of God in the flesh. He's not able to please God. Uh, and he, he's, he's a wreck. I mean, he's dead in sins and transgressions. So uh, go ahead. Am I going to get the comment on what Kerrigan says to here? Or? Yeah, that's fine. You can uh, yeah. Go ahead, because right right. that's what he had asked. Yeah. Um, yeah, 1 John 5, 1 does not make it clear that the regeneration becomes before faith. Uh, it simply says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. That doesn't say anything about regeneration coming before faith. We're kind of getting off topic, though. That this is about original sin, not about irresistible grace or about unconditional election or you know, anything like that. It's simply about original sin. But they get to this issue of Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. It says, For the law could not do that it would... Well, actually, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the car- So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, so this issue is saying everyone is either setting their mind on the flesh... They're carnally minded, or they're setting their minds on the spirit. They're spiritually minded. Setting your minds on the flesh simply means that you are obeying the flesh or you're sinning. Setting your minds on the spirit simply means that you are obeying the spirit. Repentance means to change your mind. Seriously, to stop setting their minds on the flesh and set their minds on the spirit instead by repenting of their sins, turning in faith to Christ, and becoming born again and receiving the Holy Spirit of God. Sinners who are mind in the flesh cannot please God or be subject to the laws of God. Sinners must first change their mind, repent, and start setting their minds on the things of the Spirit of God through a repentance, putting their faith in Christ, and becoming born again, which all happens at one time. So, Pat, you can go ahead and respond to that. Yeah, I was just going to say that the mind of the flesh is hostile towards God. It's not subject to the law. It's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And he's talking about unregenerate people, because in verse 9 he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, talking to the believers. God is clear that godly sorrow worketh repentance. God is the one that grants us not only to suffer, but also to believe. Faith is a gift from God. Uh, in, in Galatians 5.20, where it talks about the gifts of the spirit, faith is one of those. Jesus said, that which of flesh is flesh, that which of spirit is spirit. Uh, in John chapter uh, 1, it says that we are born, not only John ch- uh, chapter 5, verse 1, but also John chapter 1. We are born of God. And this is just consistent with the theme throughout the Bible that man is dead in sin, unable to choose God, unable to please God. Uh, he's, he's literally rendered uh, useless in the unregenerate state. So you can go ahead and comment. Right, now, yeah. No, it's okay. Uh, now we have a call from 910. I think it's John again. Is that you again, John? Sure is. You have another question there, brother? Yeah, one real quick uh, question for both of you again. What are the consequences of the doctrine that you're teaching if uh, that doctrine is false? Thank you. Okay. Okay, well, uh, I guess the 
Uh, go ahead. Go first, Pat. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I don't think if the doctrine that I'm teaching is false, if people aren't born in sin, then I don't think the consequences are that bad because really all I have to do is just, you know, pull myself up from my own bootstraps and turn and, and just choose and trust God. So I don't, I don't know if there's, that, if there's eternal consequences. If I was saying that, yeah, you know what, what I'm believing is false and I'm teaching you, hey, listen, don't worry about it. You don't have to live a life for God. You don't have to preach the gospel. You know, you don't have to uh, live a holy turn from sin. You know, because guess what? It's all Adam's fault. That would be an eternal consequence that I wouldn't want to face. But not, I'm not saying any of that. I'm simply saying that you're dead in sin and that because you're dead in sin, you are dead in Adam, because you're dead in, which means you're dead in sin, and Christ, therefore, the parallel there, is the one who makes you alive, not by anything that you've done, not by any good work. So I see my position as completely God-glorifying. I see Kerrigan's position as completely man-glorifying, because in the end, Kerrigan chose to, to, to go to God because he knew that there was eternal consequences, and he did it. God helped him, but he's the one that's... He'll be separated from the guy on the street. Says, how did that... How come you, Kerrigan, and not that other guy over there? Well, I, I chose to believe. And that's man-glorifying. Yeah, well, this, this whole straw man that Pat's been living the whole time against me, that my doctrine is man-glorifying, is totally false. My doctrine simply says that God is vindicated from, uh, you know, maligning his character by saying, basically, he wants most people to sin. He wants most people who he created, who created their nature, he created them in their mother's womb, he created Adam and Eve, he created Lucifer, that he wants most people to go to hell, that he actually wants that, because he could do something about it, he just chooses not to. No, mine uh, gives glory to God. It doesn't glorify man, and, and, and choosing is not works. And nowhere in the Bible is choosing described as works. Works is simply described in the Bible as earning your salvation or deserving your salvation or doing something to earn your, or deserve your salvation. But the fact of the matter is, uh, without Christ shedding his blood on the cross, there's no possible way I could ever be saved because I deserve hell for my sins. Uh, now, as I usually like to give, is this is situation of, of someone being out in the water and someone tossing a life preserver to them. And now, if, if they grab onto the life preserver and they get to this stage afterward where these news reporters are, if he stood up and said, I deserve credit for saving me, everyone would laugh him off the stage because he deserves no credit. He was helpless. He was going to drown in that ocean. And someone came and threw him a life preserver. And all he said, but they just grab onto it. That's what the Bible says. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So God gets all the glory. But what, what's the consequences for believing? Well, the consequences are, well, I'll stand before God and God will take care of you. Why did you live so holy? Why did you put so much responsibility upon man? Why did you do that, Kerrigan? And I'll say, I'm sorry, God. I didn't mean to put so much responsibility upon me. I didn't mean to make him responsible for all his sin, that you were responsible for none of it. That's the consequence I see from mine, from my doctrine. But I see no bad consequences at all. The bad consequence I see from Pat is, once again, that God is the author of sin. Okay, we have time for one more caller. Uh, it's the only call we have. It's, it's uh, from area code 817. Please state your name and where you're from. I'm Ryan from Waco, Texas. Okay, Ryan, who are you directing your question towards today? Um, I just wanted to get an interpretation from both of you guys. on uh, In 1 John, uh, I guess we, you all would agree that that uh, book is written toward believers uh, to make sure of your, your, your belief that it's a saving faith. Right. Um, well, I just have a question about 1 John, uh, 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10. 
Because I was under the impression in, in 1 John 1 it says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in 1 John 1 it says if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I was under the impression that 1 John 1 was talking about original sin or depravity. And I was wondering, and I, I was wondering what you guys thought about that um, and how you all would respond to that. Okay, thanks for your question. You can go first, Pat. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we, so if he says there, if, we're, if we say that we don't have any sin, we're, we're basically good people. Um, I don't see anything in here by relating to Adam, but what happens is, is when you go through that, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. We know that if you confess, you're going to be clean from not from the saying that you don't have sin, but if you do commit a sin, so he's contrasting two different types of sin. And then in chapter, in verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, and this is back onto verse 9, if we say we've never transgressed God's law, we're making him a liar. So there's two types of sin that, that are speaking here. Uh, and since we know that John is the same writer that validated that there was original sin, that man has to be born again, that no one can come to the Father, uh, I'm sorry, come to Jesus unless the Father drags him, and, and he will let... John is the one that's writing this. Uh, you can conclude there that this is him saying that we, if we deny that we have any type of sin that the Bible is speaking about, original uh, sin included, we are deceiving ourselves, which is actually my plea in the beginning, don't be deceived. Yeah, First John 1.8 and 1.10 are saying the same exact thing in two different ways. And First John 1.9 says how we can be cleansed. But if we're going to interpret this properly, let's look at First John chapter 2, just after First John 1.10, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1, which says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So he's pleading with them not to sin. And he says, if, if anyone sins, not when, presupposing you have to sin or you have to sin every day, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it says in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, a liar, and a truth is not in him. This issue that of being born again is not a change in constitution. Being born again is a change of moral character, not a change in your physical body or a change in a sinful nature that you're born with. It's simply a change in your moral character. You're living a different life. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Anyone's in Christ is new creation. Behold, all, has, all, all old has passed. Behold, all has become new. And this whole issue of God drawing, uh, the Greek word there does not not mean drag. It means influence. It means draw. And John twelve thirty two says, "If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me." So once again, if you're going to believe what Pat does according to John, with his interpretation of John six, then you have universalism once again. Okay, well, that's the last call we have. Um, Pat, do you have any final words you want to get before I let you go? Yes, Chuck James 2.6 and Acts 16.9, they both use the word drag, the same exact word in the Greek that, G that Jesus says uh, the Father does. He drags people to him. So look at James 2.6 and Acts 16.9, and you'll see they're the same exact words. It's talking about when someone drags you into court, and when they seized Paul and Silas and drug them into the, mar uh, into the marketplace. But thank you All very right. much for, but Kerrigan, thank you for, for having me on here and, uh, and, and being willing to discuss this stuff. I appreciate it. Sure, no problem, Pat. You have, God bless you and have a great day. Okay. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's the end of the debate.
It went a lot quicker than I thought it would. Didn't really get to discuss as many things I would have liked to discuss. Uh, you still there, Jesse? Oh yeah, I'm here. And uh, so, what's your thoughts on the debate so far? We'll talk about it more tomorrow. What's your thoughts so far? Yeah, well, I, I'm very glad that uh, we were able to discuss this and to debate this, and uh, you know, certainly we'll have a lot more time tomorrow on the radio show to discuss this issue of original sin. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion tomorrow. It's sort of hard for me being a moderator in the debate when I wish I could jump in and, and say some things. Uh, you know, uh, so I'm looking forward to the discussion in the the, um, the radio show tomorrow. But I think that the the debate went uh, very well. I mean, he uh, you know clearly represented the Calvinistic position. Um, God wanted us to sin. God decreed sin. Sin is God's sovereign plan. And uh, you know all these other Calvinistic ideas from the Reformation, and I thought you did yeah, a very... But then, but then he would also say that, that God allows it. So he was kind of playing both sides there. He was saying yeah. God decrees it, and then he said God allows it. Well, which one is it? Yeah. It can't be and, uh, Yeah, that's right. And uh, and I thought you did a, a very good job, like you said, uh, you know, teaching the doctrine not of the Reformation, but of the early church. How the, the early church taught, uh, not that we were born sinners and that sin was a part of human nature, but that we're born with a free will, and free will is a part of our human nature. So I thought you did a very, very good job uh, representing the doctrine of the early church, and um, certainly uh, something worth looking into uh, for the listeners to actually study the doctrines taught by the church before it was influenced by Augustine into all of these Gnostic concepts of sin. Um, you know, one thing I think is very vital at this debate is what is sin? Uh, and what is sinfulness? Is, I mean, is sin a choice or is it a, is it a substance? To say that we're, we're born sinful before we make any choices is to say that something other than choices is sinful. So I, I'm, I'm always interested in what they say, which part of us is sinful? Is it our eyeball? Is it our toes? Is it our legs? If we're born sinful, which part of us is sinful? If sinfulness does not relate to free will choices, what does sinfulness relate to? So, and what is a sin nature? Yeah, you know, what is what is a, a, a sinful nature? Usually, they mean a proneness or an inclination. But I find my nature is against sin. When I when I commit sin, my nature feels shame, guilt, and remorse. So my nature inclines me to obey God. My nature is contrary to sin because my nature has been designed by God. So, Yeah, there's a lot of verses that I wish we had time to get to that we didn't get a chance to get to, like the one in Romans 2 talking about Gentiles who by nature do the things required in the law. You know, we didn't really – it just went so quick, man, so quick. So, yeah, it, it was, um, yeah, but I look it forward was, to talking about it tomorrow. Yes, so, so tomorrow will be a good day, a uh, good show. I look forward to it. Yeah, so uh, we're not streaming right now, so no one's really listening. But if, if you just download the show and you're listening to this part of it, uh, feel free to call in tomorrow and ask more questions. Um, we'll have three people involved in answering questions time instead of just me. And uh, Jesse knows a lot. Just as much, uh, Jesse knows more about it than I do. He probably been better at debating this than me. But um, it was a good debate, and I look forward to tomorrow's show from between 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, call in if you have more questions. If you disagree with us, call in some more. Um, we look forward to it. All right, Jesse, we'll see you tomorrow, brother. Okay, God bless you. Bye. All right.